Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, Mark Rubo in conversation with Andrew Lee, Australian politician, author, lawyer, and former professor of economics at the Australian National University. He has been a Labor member of the Australian House of Representatives since 2010. Tonight, Rubo will be asking Lee about his latest book, What's the Worst That Could Happen? Here Lee looks at catastrophic risks and how to mitigate them, arguing provocatively that the rise of populist politics makes catastrophe more likely. And now here's the host of the discussion, Reading's bookseller, Murray Madison. Let's get this show on the road. I'm sure we're all ready to listen to what I know will be a fantastic conversation. So my name is Mari. First and foremost, I would like to acknowledge on behalf of Reading's and all of us here tonight that we are meeting on Indigenous land, wherever in the country you may be meeting. Myself and Mark join you from the land of the Bunwurrung Bunwurrung and Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. And I would like to pay my respects to their elders past, present and to come, and to the elders of all Indigenous lands and nations across this country. Tonight, I welcome you to what I know is going to be a fascinating conversation with author and, as you may know, Member of Parliament, Mr Andrew Lee, on his most recent book, What's the Worst That Could Happen? A bold question, I think, in these times, but I'm excited to hear the answer. He will be in conversation with our own Mark Rubo, Managing Director of Readings, and my boss. He's a very lovely boss. I'm not just saying that because we're stuck in here <laughs> together. So I'm just going to pop you over now to Mark, who will uh, get us on the road. Thank you. Mark? Thanks so much, Mari. And I'd also like to acknowledge that I'm talking to you all from the lands of the Kulin Nations, and I'd like to acknowledge their elders past, present and emerging. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I've admired you from afar as a prolific author, uh, but also as a Labor Member of Parliament since 2010. Uh, you now represent the seat of Fenner, which is a, close to my heart because uh, Professor Fenner was a professor of microbiology at ANU and my father was professor of microbiology at, at Melbourne University and they were friends. So um, I feel a sort of kindred spirit with you. Prior to your entering Parliament, you were a Professor of Economics at the ANU and previously you'd worked as a lawyer and consultant and you've also managed in uh, the last nine years to write or co-author nine books. It's, I don't know how you do it. As I say, I've, I've admired you from far and certainly your new book, What's the Worst That Could Happen, confirms that. I sort of said to Christine, our events manager, I want to get Andrew Lee talking, I'd like to have him in person, but probably that's not possible. But at least you've given us the time to talk about your new book. It's been a difficult book to get because it's been a victim of COVID. It's published by the prestigious Massachusetts Institute of Technology Press, one of the great American university presses. And of course, uh, getting stuff from overseas is is quite a trial at this time time with the delays caused by COVID and now, unfortunately, by the war in Ukraine. But we have copies, so if anyone hasn't got copies, they're available at our reading shops and also you can order them online. But, Andrew, welcome again and thank you for giving us your time. You must be very busy campaigning at the moment, so we're very, very grateful. I did want to ask you, where did you get the idea for the book? And, and the time, I guess, to you've got a very busy job. 
And you're also a keen sportsman, I, I read too. Um, well, thanks, Mark. It's a, it's a real honour to be uh, as part of a, a readings event. I've long admired readings and the opportunity to be part of one of these conversations is great. Just before I answer your question, can I acknowledge the traditional owners of the land I'm speaking to you from today, the Ngunnawal people, Dara Nuna, Dara Ngunnawal, Yongu, Nalamanyan, Dunimanyan, Ngunnawal Wari, Dara Wari, Dindi, Wangaralinjin, and acknowledge any Indigenous people on the uh, the call tonight. I'm sure uh, people will have other engagements. I shan't be troubled if you need to hop off the call early, specifically if anyone wanted to hop off the call at 7 o'clock to uh, watch Anthony Albanese demolishing Scott Morrison in the uh, first <laughs> leaders' debate. I could uh, hardly object to you uh, to, to that use of time. But, Mark, this is really a, a product of COVID, which is the great irony that it took a, a pandemic that uh, brought the world to a standstill for me to think a little bit longer term. Uh, I'd long been interested in the idea that the long term is underrated in politics, but a COVID lockdown gave me the opportunity to delve deep into the literature and just to to spend a bit, a bit of time thinking quietly about the prospects of, of the long term. And there's a kind of glass half full, glass half empty way of looking at this. The glass half empty approach is to say that this book is really a mashup of all your uh, your, your worst uh, disaster films put together. Uh, you know, asteroid strikes, nuclear war, artificial intelligence gone wrong, pandemics, and all the ways in which the world can end, which uh, according to the best estimate out there, is about one in six over the next century. In other words, we're playing Russian roulette with the planet over the century. But the optimistic side is, well, humanity is just getting going. Uh, We're on this planet where the sun has another billion years to run before we have uh, any issues of the sun wiping us out. If we have a billion years, then potentially humanity is only 0.3% of the way through our time on the planet. And so it's exciting to think about what our descendants and successors could achieve in that period. And that makes it all the more critical that we don't muck it up and end the human project uh, when it's just in its infancy. So you sort of share the views of someone like Stephen Pinker, that things are getting better and if we can keep alive, they'll just get better and better. That's right. Although Stephen, I think, would probably say that the existential risks that I talk about aren't aren't as serious. Uh, And that's because he's focused on the central case. What I'm concerned about is things which are not odds-on, but if they happened, would be catastrophic. So, you know, for the same reason that you take out fire insurance policy on your home in order for for the small probability that your house burns down, or you might take on a car insurance policy in case you uh, run into a Rolls-Royce on the way home. So too, I'd argue that these catastrophic risks are not odds on to happen, but we're under investing in, uh, in alleviating them, particularly if you, uh, if you take into account there's a one in a thousand chance that uh, the world could end through climate change uh, gone wrong uh, or through nuclear war, uh, you think to yourself, well, they're, they're pretty low, low odds, right? One in a thousand. On the other hand, if I told you that the plane you're about to board had a one in a thousand chance of crashing, would you continue to walk onto the plane? My guess is the answer is no. Uh, you'd turn around and walk back and say, well, it's only one in a thousand, but I'm not taking that chance. 
uh, catastrophic risk is actually more likely to end your life than a car accident, let alone a plane accident. So it merits more attention than it's getting right now. Uh, and the good news is we can address most of these threats at a very modest cost. In your book, you sort of, or the book subtitled Existential Risk and Extreme Politics. So what are these existential risks? You've alluded to some of them. What are these, the equivalent of cross, crossing the road without looking uh, that might hit us on the head? Great question. So I've talked about uh, five big ones. Of course, the one that comes to mind most readily is uh, pandemic. Naturally occurring pandemics are uh, probably one in 10,000 chance of wiping out humanity, but an artificially engineered pandemic uh, more like a one in 30 chance. Uh, I've talked about uh, nuclear war, uh, either deliberately or, or probably more likely by accident. We've had too many nuclear close calls and with uh, more than 10,000 active nukes, there is a risk that, uh, that, uh, that things go wrong there. Uh, of course, you know, the Ukraine has, uh, has focused our minds on that. Mm. Catastrophic climate change, think not of one and a half or two degrees of warming, but six to 10 degrees of warming. Uh, which could radically transform the world in ways in which we might think that the outcome was uh, was equivalent to the end of, end of the species. Widespread authoritarianism, think uh, 1984 enabled by technology or a kind of handmaid's tale scenario, unlikely, but if it happened, equivalent to, uh, to, to, the, uh, to the end of the world in terms of the way in which many of us with democratic values would, uh, would think about the world. Uh, and one that uh, doesn't get very much play, artificial intelligence gone wrong. In other areas I've talked about, we're worried about technological breakthroughs and in, in whether it's uh, engineering a pandemic or a technological breakthrough that caused nuclear, nuclear war to happen. Uh, in the case of artificial intelligence, we pretty much know that at some stage over the next couple of hundred years, the machines will get smarter than humans. And when that happens, we want to be sure that they share our values. Uh, if they don't, a kind of Terminator, uh, Blade Runner scenario uh, is on the cards, uh, and that sort of uh, risk is uh, is one we we oughtn't be taking. So you've, you've elucidated these these risks. Um, how do we get people to to think about them? Because you know, if you look at the, what people are talking about in this campaign, it's about cost of living. It's about the present. How do we get people to think? and care about what's going to happen, maybe not to them, but to their children or their descendants. One of the fascinating things is that Hollywood has gotten us to the edge of our seats in thinking about uh, some of these disaster risks. Uh, and indeed, the disaster films uh, just reel off the tongue. You can think of Dr. Strangelove to 29 Days Later. But they haven't translated into public policy in the most part. Uh, one of the interesting things in the area of asteroid strikes, which is actually a relatively small probability of uh, wiping out humanity, uh, is that two simultaneous movies in 1998 probably caused uh, Congress to give NASA the funding to set up the Planetary Defence Office, uh, which is tracking near-Earth objects and uh, will next year carry out uh, an, an exercise in which we'll, it'll look at uh, what we might do to knock a rogue asteroid off course. Again, very small amounts of money in the scheme of things, but Hollywood actually kicked us into action there. Uh, in the case of climate change, I think there is uh, a growing awareness of the risks. Uh, and the, uh, the late Martin Weinstein, uh, who's uh, an environmental economist who I 
learned from when I was at Harvard, uh, makes the case that the urgency of acting on climate change is greatly strengthened when you think about the potential catastrophic outcomes. Uh, and uh, we already know that investing in renewables is uh, uh, makes economic sense, that there's a lot of value from moving, moving rapidly to that green energy transition. Uh, here's one more argument that we could, uh, could add to the arsenal. Uh, democratic catastrophe, I think, is, uh, you know, people probably don't realise, but the 21st century has seen democratic backsliding. A smaller share of the world's population live in democracies than did at the turn, turn of the century. Uh, and that's one in which we need concerted effort in order to uh, strengthen democracies and, uh, and ensure that we don't have that, uh, that risk of uh, an authoritarian catastrophe. I mean, we have the prospect, hopefully slim, of Murray Le Pen succeeding next Sunday mm. in France, don't we? Um, that would be quite worrying, I, I would imagine. Right. I mean, The Economist was putting the odds of that at uh, one in five, I think, in the last uh, model I saw. Uh, and uh, that's about the odds that Donald Trump was being given ahead of the 2016 election. So uh, that sort of rise of the, uh, the populist authoritarians uh, who uh, see Putin as their role model and uh, uh, disavow democratic norms uh, is, a, is, is a real danger, not only in its own right, but also because populists uh, uh, make it much harder for the world to deal with these existential risks. So why is it the populists can't, you know, they want to be strong people and tell us what to do? Why can't they fix these problems? Well, it's very much uh, a, a feature of the way in which populists operate, that they uh, are in the short term. They turn the temperature up, they get us to focus on the here and now, and their, their model is conflict. So the idea of, uh, of populism is that politics is a battle between the uh, pure mass of people and a vile elite. Uh, classic Latin American leftist populists uh, posit the vile elite as being the rich, uh, but uh, pop right-wing populists posit an elite which is intellectuals or immigrants or urbanites. Uh, and uh, in the process, they trash international, in, international engagement, uh, they attack institutions, uh, and they're often strongly anti-intellectual. Uh, these are all things that we actually need in order to, uh, to, to deal with catastrophic risks. So if you're concerned about climate change, you need global engagement, strong institutions, and listening to the scientists. And the very model of populists uh, is to attack all of those things, uh, which is why you see such a strong link between populism and uh, uh, climate change denialism. Uh, much the same as has been true of COVID. Uh, populists have, uh, have long been on the anti-vaccination camp because that fits with a, an anti-intellectual, anti-science bent. Uh, but when COVID came along, Many populists uh, moved on to the uh, uh, anti-lockdown uh, and often the anti-vaccination approach. Uh, some were making money out of uh, uh, touting uh, so-called cures that, uh, that didn't work. Uh, but the, uh, the whole strategy of populists was anathema to the kind of calm science-based approach uh, that we needed in order to minimise deaths and economic damage through COVID. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? When the Cold War finished, I think Fukuyama prophesied that we're now going into a golden age of democracy and uh, all these terrible troubles we're going through would be a thing of the past. Um, do you think, has he been proved wrong, do you think? Yeah, I mean, Frank himself has uh, written about uh, the, the way in which uh, his thesis was too optimistic. Uh, 
Uh, he would say in his own defence that he was talking about uh, the very, very long term and arguing that non-democracy, that, that democratic capitalism was the only stable state. Uh, and that might yet be right. Uh, you know, we look at uh, the way in which uh, the Chinese Communist Party is, is now struggling in, uh, in, in Shanghai with a, a zero COVID strategy. Um, certainly, uh, Russia under Putin doesn't look like it's in a, a sort of stable equilibrium. Uh, but uh, the uh, the arc of uh, arc of history is very long. I think is uh, is what uh, what Fukuyama's end of history thesis taught us. Uh, we might get there, but uh, but it requires concerted work and also a, um, a, a hewing to institutions. So I think it's always vital for politicians, whether they're on the left as I am or, or politicians on the right, to recognise that. The strength, the health of the democracy is something that we need to all value, uh, and that winning at all costs can 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 damage institutions in in ways which are ultimately anathema to our values. So, in Australia, we've had a fairly stable political system, but we're now seeing, you know, your Clive Palmer's and your Craig Kelly's. Who would you classify them as populists in the sense that you're talking about in your book? Absolutely, yeah. I've been critical of Craig Kelly in, in Parliament and arguing that uh, his touting of unproven cures uh, has uh, has a, a real risk for the uh, for, for the democracy. Um, but you can also see the interplay between uh, uh, par- parliamentarians like them, or you know George Christensen, One Nation, uh, which have uh, between them and the populist right in other countries, uh, particularly the US populist right, which has uh, sought to spread its tentacles around the world and to link up these uh, these populist movements. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was struck in the uh, anti, anti-lockdown, anti-vax protests we had here in Canberra, yes. uh, seeing American flags flying uh, and, uh, and, you know, Donald Trump imagery. Uh, yeah. It's uh, It's very much... Uh, Derivative. A lot of it is derivative and borrowed, but we shouldn't take it any less seriously. Uh, you know, work by uh, people like Van Batten uh, has uh, has shown the very clear links to uh, between the Australian conspiracy theorists and uh, and some of those in the US uh, and the desire among uh, those groups to uh, to fundamentally undermine a lot of what we've seen as the the tenets of a strong, healthy uh, democracy in which we. Uh, uh, we debate based on a shared un- a set, a set of facts rather than uh, uh, making up alternative realities. To the outsider, or to me at least, it, it seems that the current environment is very difficult for any party to get up good, sound policy. Uh, but you write in your book, you, you're a great uh, believer in parliament and in democracy, and I think you say you're very proud of some of the things you've achieved in parliament. What do you say to me? He says, you'll never be able to do it. It's too hard. Well, uh, one response, I suppose, Mark, is is that's the only way we've ever done serious change. So, you know, how do we get the age pension? How do we get the National Disability Insurance Scheme? How do we get Medicare? Uh, Well, uh, you know, social movements can kickstart things, but ultimately Parliament is where it's at to build those changes. Uh, You look at uh, changes elsewhere, the uh, civil rights movement in the United States, ultimately that is a a legislative movement. Uh, The Bismarcking welfare state, again, uh, legislative change. So 
Parliament is uh, is where it's at. It's not a perfect institution by any means, but I think uh, ultimately we need to be channeling energies towards uh, that, so, that that sort of uh, positive social change. Uh, it is uh, it's vital to have uh, uh, activists, but it's also important that we not allow activist energy to uh, to feed the idea that everything is uh, is corrupt and broken uh, for all my critiques of those uh, on uh, on the other side of parliament i do think fundamentally parliament is uh, is filled with people who got into politics for the right reasons uh, and that uh, the growth of personal attacks and uh, and under undermining uh, your uh, your opponent is dangerous, particularly to those of us who believe that government has a power to act, uh, because if we undermine uh, the health of the democracy, that can ultimately undermine people's willingness to use government uh, to solve social ills. Well, I hope you're right. <laughs> you talked about the threat of nuclear war, and you know, I grew up in the Cold War, and it seemed at, at the time that, especially after um, the Cuba Missile Crisis, that it demonstrated that at least Russia and America knew there was a bridge too far. You, you t- sort of talk about the problems now, and especially uh, Ukraine has brought this to the fore, that, you know, t- tomorrow, for example, Putin could let off a nuclear weapon or, or the United States retaliate. It's, it's a very frightening thing that we've probably pushed to the side, not thought about it very much. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I remember growing up as a kid in the 1980s, uh, agreeing with a friend in primary school that neither of us would ever see the decade out because nuclear war was an an inevitability. Um, Mm. That sense of fear, I remember uh, being uh, pursued with uh, through through movies such as The Day After uh, and and just the the frightening uh, growth in the size of the, uh, the arsenals. Um, now I, I think the challenge is somewhat different. It's fragmented. Uh, you've got more, more nuclear weapons states and, uh, and a risk that additional states uh, such as Iran might break through and, uh, and acquire nuclear weapons. Um, that then creates the same sort of risk that you have uh, uh, in, a, uh, in, a, in a fractious bar. Uh, the more uh, fighters there are in the bar, the more risks there are to any given individual because there's more different ways of the, uh, the fight breaking out. Uh, and we uh, we need to see every nuclear weapon as a potential point of failure. Uh, so reducing arsenals uh, reduces the uh, the odds that something goes wrong. Uh, one thing, one other uh, cause that's been pushed quite strongly is uh, no first use doctrine, uh, ensuring that countries are, are committed to not responding to a non nuclear attack with a nuclear attack. Uh, and technological fixes, um, such as having uh, uh, the ability to recall nuclear weapons. Uh, Militaries have have long pushed back against this, saying that that could be uh, hacked by an adversary. Uh, But I think the uh, track record of nuclear disasters suggests that it is uh, much more likely that uh, you would want to recall an errant missile because of an error uh, than that you would be hacked by your adversary and then unable to to use your, use your nukes. Um, the, uh, the old uh, Thomas Schelling notion that, uh, that we could have mutually assured destruction between two nuclear weapon states that would maintain the balance gets much harder to sustain when you've got a, a proliferation of nuclear armed states. Yes, and especially when some of those um, states are, are ruled by populists. Uh, but you, you think we can get there? 
Yes, I mean, it, it is striking that uh, the United States, for example, uh, vests control of uh, nuclear weapons in uh, one person, the head of state. Uh, not every nuclear state does that, uh, and it, uh, it generates an, an enormous risk. Uh, which has been explored in some of the uh, uh, books about uh, the, the Trump White House, uh, but has uh, but has long existed. You know, uh, Richard Nixon famously, uh, you know, would uh, uh, get get uh, get drunk and rage about uh, what he could what he could do <laughs> with the uh, with, with nuclear weapons. Uh, all of that is a, a terrifying amount of power to place in the hands of one person. Also, uh, I was interested too. You once again alluded to the pandemics and. In your book, you talk about the rogue element. Uh, you refer to the, uh, the famous Japanese um, group who used the sarin gas in the in the subways there and killed many, many people. Sort of posit that might be a possibility. Yes, the danger is that the technology is uh, advancing fast, and so uh, the Armstrongo sect did attempt to get their hands on uh, nastier bugs, but weren't able to. Uh, the risk now is you might be able to uh, artificially engineer some of these bad bugs. Uh, there was uh, there's a, a recent paper that was uh, published. It was either in Science or Nature. I can't remember which. Uh, after my book came out, uh, mm. in which uh, scientists uh, set a computer program running uh, in order to uh, basically it was a computer program which had originally been looking at ways of uh, finding cures for diseases. They flipped it around and said, "What would happen if we tried to look for?" The worst, the, the worst diseases, uh, and it uh, it came back with a, a, a large number of hits. Um, this so-called gain-of-function research, in which uh, uh, you try and look at how to make uh, bugs worse, uh, does raise challenges for the traditional academic approach of uh, of open science and publishing results. Uh, in this case, I think we probably want uh, uh, incentives to ensure that the some of these risky results aren't published, uh, getting that right, I think, is, uh, is re really important. Mm. Uh, if you look at the, uh, the budget of the uh, Biological Weapons Convention uh, Bureau, uh, so we could do more, do more with a very small amount of money uh, to improve the quality of enforcement of some of these agreements. Right. So, so climate change has been a very difficult issue for us to tackle here, and certainly in other countries like India is uh, because so dependent on coal. You you are optimistic that we can get there. I am, it, it, because uh, you have know, two factors. One is that uh, there's a lot of jobs in the renewables transition. Uh, the second is that once you move to renewables, then you've got uh, zero cost uh, electricity, and I think that uh, that's a, a huge uh, benefit because then you're able to uh, to. Uh, electrify a lot, a lot more of the uh, uh, economy, uh, and that electrification process uh, then has significant productivity gains. So, whereas twenty years ago was very, very much uh, having to pay a price to decarbonise, now I think there's a, a benefit to decarbonising. Um, so, I'm hopeful that that's uh, that's going to be uh, uh, an opportunity which more countries grab. Uh, we need to make sure that the resources are flowing to developing countries in order to assist them to make that transition. Um, it doesn't make sense that they would uh, uh, do it without assistance from uh, more advanced countries uh, and the uh, some of the, the uh, cheapest uh, emissions abatement is going to come uh, from uh, uh, assisting developing countries to, uh, to, to develop on a, a low-carbon path. 
uh, it can be done, uh, but if uh, warming gets out of control, then uh, some of those scenarios are pretty terrifying. Uh, the scale of sea level rise that would wipe out you know, large shares of coastal cities, um, the temperature rises, which would make a lot of outdoor activity uh, impossible in many in many countries, uh, the extreme weather events, which we're seeing all in Australia already in Australia, but which could become much much worse with uh, uh, unchecked climate change. Mm. I mean, I found, as I said before, I found the book fascinating and really thought provoking. Um, have you discussed it with your your colleagues in 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 Parliament or, or had a chance to? Yeah, I have, and uh, you know, I get a get a positive response, particularly on if you go issue by issue. Um, so you know, the uh, the value of having an Australian Centre for Disease Control and dealing with pandemics. Uh, Anthony Albanese has has long time long been a, a strong supporter of uh, of denuclearisation. Um, and uh, concerned about the the risks that nuclear catastrophe could cause, uh, and on climate change, I think uh, they're, uh, they're my my co- my colleagues are uh, are as passionate as I am about uh, taking action on climate change. Um, artificial intelligence is one where uh, I find there's more of a conversation to be had, mm. but certainly around the strength of, the de- of democracy, that's uh, that's something we're acutely alive to uh, as a party, which is. Uh, Frequently uh, targeted by populists. <laughs> yes, um, but artificial intelligence is an interesting question. Once again, I suppose people don't think about it that much, although people do experience sort of disruptions to their lives through the rapid technological change uh, over the past, you know, ten years. Um, some of it has been positive, and some been negative. And obviously, in my case, um, Amazon has been a terrible. <laughs> A terrible thing. Um, so, yeah, talk about a bit, bit about that. I'm interested to tease that about that. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, doing an in-conversation event with uh, Toby Walsh in a couple of weeks, and Toby's uh, uh, a computer scientist at the University of New South Wales who argues that uh, the real problem isn't super smart AI, it's dumb AI. Uh, it's artificial yeah. intelligence that is uh, uh, making the uh, making bad decisions, entrenching bias in court decisions, uh, which uh, whose algorithms are uh, flawed when it comes to uh, uh, judging employees, uh, which uh, artificial intelligence, which is uh, making errors that are that, that are mucking up people people's lives. Uh, but I don't think that is inconsistent with the principle that uh, super smart computers could ultimately develop. Uh, which might have a different set of values to ours. Uh, the thought experiment that uh, Nick Bostrom uses is, is what happened. What would happen if a super intelligent computer emerged um, with a desire to produce as many paper clips as possible? Uh, now, on the face of it, that's not a destroy the human strategy. But if it decided that our buildings and our cars were raw materials for building more paper clips, uh, then you might have an AI that viewed humanity pretty much the same way as we view ants. Uh, you know, we don't go out of our way to kill them, but neither do we uh, uh, see, see it as important to look after them. And the risk of this, I think, Mark, is, uh, is greatest if you have an artificial intelligence race, because then the competing teams might well uh, worry less about safety, uh, and you might then have a greater risk that unaligned artificial intelligence uh, could, uh, could get out of control. 
Now, and once it's out of control, it accelerates away from us very quickly. Uh, so it wouldn't be sort of near human intelligence for long. It would rapidly move to a point where its intelligence compared to us was a bit like our intelligence compared to our puppies and cats. Right. So I think you call for um, some sort of international agreements or accord on this, don't you? Yeah, and it's interesting that uh, this was a proposal put forward a number of years ago by uh, uh, Trudeau and Macron, who wanted to bring together something akin to the International Panel on Climate Change uh, for artificial intelligence risk. Uh, and that was stymied by the then Trump administration, but it's an idea which is, uh, I think, has, has a lot of promise. Uh, there's a, a vast array of, of artificial intelligence principles which are around, uh, which guide thoughtful teams working on artificial intelligence, uh, but having some sort of a better international agreement uh, could well ensure that we, we build the guardrails before we build the highway. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the, the principles, I think, are uh, quite well established, which is that you want an artificial intelligence uh, which is altruistic, observant and humble. Uh, that is where we don't try and encode a set of values and I hope that we'll cover all cases, but instead we ask it to observe us and figure out from that what our values are and how they can be best pursued. Uh, and that means that you, you don't get into the sort of cases that are explored in Isaac Asimov's short <laughs> stories, many of which are about what happens when you just try and encode a couple of principles for the, for the computer and, and hope for the best. Right, I'm mindful that you're a very busy man at the moment and um, it's been a wonderful discussion. I do recommend your book to everyone. I mean, it's the kind of book I love, this sort of teasing out ideas and trying to think of what the best solutions are and um, I wish you well. I'm very interested to see what you, you'll bring out next. Well, um, thank you, Mark, and I hope we're able to, uh, to do, do something like this in, uh, in person down the, down the track. That would be great, and um, I wish you very well in your um, coming election for the, the seat of Fenner. Hope you're very successful. Thank you so much again, and once again, everyone, I do recommend this book. It's fascinating, so I recommend it, and thank you so much, Andrew, and thank you, everyone else, for joining us, and I hope you found it as interesting as I did to talk to Andrew, surely one of our great um, thinkers in Parliament. Thank you once again. Thanks, Mark. Enjoy the debate, everyone. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Andrew. That was fantastic. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast at our website, where you'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. Thank you.